Hello and welcome to the Speaking for Him podcast. My name is Andrew Gomison, and it is my privilege each week to host this show for you and to hopefully encourage you on this journey that we call the Christian life. Many thanks to Hillsdale College for their free resources related to the 4th of July, and one of those was that beautiful rendition of America the Beautiful by the Hillsdale College Choir, and I am so blessed to be able to share that with you as part of the show. I have a lot to share with you today, and the main topic of our show today is the final episode of The Chosen Season 2, Episode 8, Beyond Mountains. And we will get into that shortly, but first I want to talk to you about what is going on. This week, America celebrated her birthday. She as a nation is 246 years old. It's hard to believe that in four short years, the good Lord willing, we will reach 250 years as a nation. And I think it's very important for us to look back on that and to talk to people about where America came from so that we can learn from our successes and our failures because those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, but also so that we can be thankful for the freedoms that were preserved for us by the sacrifices of so many. And we will dig into that in just a few moments. But first I want to bring to your attention a clip from the Jen Fulweiler show from this past week. If you're not familiar with Jen Fulweiler, she's a Catholic conservative commentator who spent a lot of years on the Catholic channel for satellite radio. She walked away from that uh, because she felt like it was a good thing for her family and also because she wanted to transition into stand-up comedy, and then COVID happened. So she used that opportunity to start a podcast, which was at first called This Is Jen, and then, I guess, once legalities were worked out, she adopted the moniker once again of the Jen Fulweiler Show for this weekly podcast. And she shares a lot of things about family life from a conservative and a comedic point of view, and I just really resonated with what she had to share on the last show about what future generations have to look forward to if they continue in this individualistic mindset where we find ourselves as a country. I was on a freight train to Dying Aloneville <gasps> because of my atheistic, individualistic, very deeply American mentality. I was going to girl boss my way into dying alone. And again, I do not have extended family. Dying alone, quote unquote, I mean, if you have cousins and brothers and sisters and other people to look out for you, that's, I, I am not suggesting that just because someone doesn't go have a big family, that, that that's some, you know, horrible, horrible fate. I'm saying in my case, after my parents were gone, who would be there for me? I posed this question to my kids the other day. I said, you know, your, I said, your dad, um, his mom is, is basically gone due to Alzheimer's and his dad is gone. The uncle who was like a father to him is gone. He is not in touch with any of his other aunts and uncles. I was like, think about this. If he didn't have our family who, you know, if he had a medical issue, who would drive him to his doctor's appointments? 
Who would take care of him in his old age? Who would he call if he fell and broke a hip and needed help going to the grocery store? He'd have no one. He he doesn't have siblings. He doesn't he he has no he has no one like especially now that his mother's gone as well. He has no one. And I was headed for a very similar fate. And that's the thing. The atheistic, individualistic worldview is all fun and games when you're healthy and in your 20s. When you are aging and sick and in your 70s, it is a lot less fun and it's a lot less cute. And no one is telling this generation that. No one is having them think ahead what are the fruits of this going to be? You, you're so dismissive about the idea of finding any sort of long-term support system, whether that is through having your own children, getting married, or just get, putting really deep roots in your community. And look, for those of you guys who come from big families or your parents come from big families who are close, honestly, I can't argue with that. Fine. Like it, that's, it's probably going to work <laughs> out for you. Like Shady has all these brothers and sisters. Like you guys are fine. You have a bunch of brothers and sisters, so you're fine. But if you just have zero or one siblings, that's not going to work out well. It's not going to work out well when you start getting older and you don't care about your career as much and you're not making as much money and your health is not what it was and your vibrancy is not what it was. No one's talking to this generation about that. I have talked a lot on this podcast about how we do not live in a bubble. We like to think that we live in a bubble. We like to think that the decisions that we make only affect us and they don't affect others. And one of the prevalent commonalities today is for people to either cohabitate and not get married or to get married and say that they, that we don't want to have children uh, because it's more convenient for us not to. As a matter of fact, I was sitting at work um, a couple of years ago and the discussion came up about children and one of the teachers that had recently had a child said that he kind of missed being a dink. And what he meant by being a dink was having a double income and no kids. And I was sitting there trying to absorb this and thinking, well, yeah, from a certain perspective, when you're healthy and you don't have any uh, major financial concerns, yes, a child seems like an interruption to that. But as Jen so eloquently stated here, it looks different when you're in your 60s and 70s and you need help than it does in your 20s and 30s when you feel like it's you against the world and you will overcome anything and you are invincible. So I just really appreciated that because that is something upon which speaking for him is based. The idea that family relationships are important, that family is a foundation for all great societies and Families are part of what makes America great. Um, the opportunity to pass on our heritage to the next generation is an amazing thing. We read in the book of Judges how it only took one generation for the entire nation of Israel to forget God. And so we have a great responsibility to make sure that the generation that comes behind us will know and follow God for themselves. I do not yet have children, uh, but I have a responsibility to the children of the next generation that I come in contact with, whether they be nieces or nephews or others, to guide them to the one who I know 
has all the answers, and that is Jesus Christ. So I was really encouraged by that. I hope that you will be encouraged as well. And if you want more encouragement in parenting, um, uh, give Jen Fulweiler a listen. Again, uh, she is Catholic, so keep that in mind. But she has a lot of wisdom and humor to share, and so I wanted to put that out there. Now I want to turn our attention to the 4th of July. It's such an exciting thing every year, Independence Day. And I think we've lost some of our appreciation for it because we don't know what the costs were. And there's a really powerful video that Paul Harvey did, obviously several years ago because he's been gone from this earth for several years. But I like to watch it every year to remind me of the cost of freedom. And here is the documented fate of that gallant 56. Carter Braxton of Virginia, wealthy planter, trader, saw his ships swept from the seas. To pay his debts, he lost his home and all of his properties and died in rags. Thomas Lynch, Jr., who signed that pledge, was a third-generation rice grower, aristocrat, large plantation owner. After he signed, his health failed. His wife and he set out for France to regain his failing health. Their ship never got to France, was never heard from again. Thomas McKean of Delaware was so harassed by the enemy that he was forced to move his family five times in five months. He served in Congress without pay, his family in poverty and in hiding. Vandals looted the properties of Ellery and Clymer and Hall and Gwinnett and Walton and Hayward and Rutledge and Middleton. Thomas Nelson, Jr. of Virginia, raised $2 million on his own signature to provision our allies, the French fleet. After the war, he personally paid back the loans, wiped out his entire estate, and he was never reimbursed by his government. In the final battle for Yorktown, he, Nelson, urged General Washington to fire on his, Nelson's own home, which was occupied by Cornwallis. It was destroyed. Thomas Nelson, Jr. had pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. The Hessians seized the home of Francis Hopkinson of New Jersey. Francis Lewis had his home and everything destroyed, his wife imprisoned. She died within a few months. Richard Stockton, who signed that declaration, was captured, mistreated, his health broken to the extent that he died at 51. His estate was pillaged. Thomas Hayward, Jr. was captured when Charleston fell. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside while she was dying. Their 13 children fled in all directions for their lives. His fields and grist mill were laid waste. For more than a year, he lived in forests and caves and returned home after the war to find his wife dead, his children gone, his properties gone. And he died a few weeks later of exhaustion and a broken heart. Lewis Morris saw his land destroyed, his family scattered. Philip Livingston died within a few months from the hardships of the war. John Hancock, history remembers best due to a quirk of fate rather than anything he stood for, that great sweeping signature attesting to his vanity towers over the others, one of the wealthiest men in New England. And yet he stood outside Boston one terrible night of the war. And he said, burn Boston, though it makes John Hancock a beggar. 
if the public good requires it. So he too lived up to the pledge. Of the 56, few were long to survive. Five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes from Rhode Island to Charleston sacked, looted, occupied by the enemy or burned. Two lost their sons in the army. One had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 died in the war from its hardships or from its more merciful bullets. I don't know what impression you had had of the men who met that summer in Philadelphia. But I think it's important that we remember this about them. They were not poor men. They were not wild-eyed pirates. These were men of means. They were rich men, most of them, and had enjoyed much ease and luxury in their personal living. Not hungry men, certainly not terrorists, not irresponsible malcontents, not fanatical incendiaries. These men were prosperous men, wealthy landowners. They were substantially secure in their prosperity. They had everything to lose. But they considered liberty, and this is as much as I shall say of it. They had learned that liberty is so much more important than security, that they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And they fulfilled their pledge. They paid the price. And freedom was born. That piece always gets to me, and I'm recharged every time I listen to it or see it. Just hearing their stories and realizing the true sacrifice that came about to make this country a reality. I think if all of the people that speak out against America with such loud voices and who claim that they are going to leave America when something happens that they don't like, if they were to listen to these stories, at least half of them I would think would at least revise their opinion slightly because you can't help but be moved at people who are willing to lose their own resources if it meant preserving a future for their posterity. That is the kind of attitude that men of God need to have, a sacrificial attitude, an attitude that says, I want to give my children a better opportunity and a better world than that which I have grown up in. And thus, the fight for liberty goes on. As I've said in previous episodes, I'm very thankful that in the midst of the darkness in which we find ourselves, there are glimpses of light happening in our country. And I'm just thankful for those who have the courage to stand up for what is right. And now I think it's important for us to revisit the Declaration of Independence. You know, one of the things I think that is so necessary uh, for us is to become students of history and to know the Declaration of Independence, to know things like the Constitution. Because if we're going to debate them in the public square, if we're going to talk about what is or isn't constitutional or what the founders did or did not mean, we should know what they wrote. And with special permission from Russ Van Allen, 
of the Menacing Podcast, I present to you his reading of the Declaration of Independence. In Congress, July 4, 1776, the unanimous Declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal." that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed." But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation until his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records, for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. 
He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens, taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. At every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies 
are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So there you have the Declaration of Independence. And there's two things that I want to point out about it. First of all is the fact that from the very beginning paragraphs of this declaration, you realize that the power of the government and its founding and its preservation was to be in the hands of the people. The founding fathers understood that they were public servants and that this wasn't supposed to be a lifelong pursuit. And it also gave the people power to change the government as needed. And now I think we're living in a time and a place where the government thinks that they deserve all the power and whenever their power gets checked, they get upset. We've seen that over the last two years, and we've seen that especially over the last few weeks with the decisions of the Supreme Court siding with the people. As I said before, and I'll say again, the more power that you can give the people, the better off we are as a nation. Before we move on from this discussion of our history and of our birthday as a nation, I thought it was important for us to remember the names of those who signed the Declaration of Independence. The foregoing declaration was, by order of Congress, engrossed and signed by the following members. John Hancock. New Hampshire. Josiah Bartlett. William Whipple, Matthew Thornton, Massachusetts Bay, Samuel Adams, John Adams, Robert Treat Payne, Elbridge Jerry, Rhode Island, Stephen Hopkins, William Ellery, Connecticut, Roger Sherman, Samuel Huntington, William Williams, Oliver Walcott, Delaware, Caesar Rodney, George Reed, Thomas McKean, Marilyn, Samuel Chase, William Packer, Thomas Stone, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, Virginia, George Wythe, Richard Henry Lee, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Harrison, Thomas Nelson Jr., Francis Lightfoot Lee, Carter Braxton, New York, William Floyd, Philip Livingston, Francis Lewis, Lewis Morris, New Jersey, Richard Stockton, John Witherspoon, Francis Hopkinson, John Hart, Abraham Clark, Pennsylvania, Robert Morris, Benjamin Rush, Benjamin Franklin, John Morton, George 
Clymer, James Smith, George Taylor, James Wilson, George Ross, North Carolina, William Hooper, Joseph Hughes, John Penn, South Carolina, Edward Rutledge, Thomas Hayward Jr., Thomas Lynch Jr., Arthur Middleton, Georgia, Button Gwinnett, Lyman Hall, George Walton. Those 56 men were the signers. The first, of course, being John Hancock, who was the president of the Second Continental Congress. As promised, today we are digging into the second season, eighth episode of The Chosen. And so this is the season finale, and it's called Beyond Mountains. And this is another one of those episodes where I thought it was well done, and I I think there are some lessons for us to learn, but I struggled with it because there was a lot of extra-biblical things going on. So we're just going to walk through this together, talk about it, and I'll express some of my concerns, but I'll also share with you some of the reasons why Dallas Jenkins decided to do it the way that he did. But let's begin with our quote of the day. They all love our rabbi and want to follow him the right way. They just can't agree on what that right way is. This quote, which I've drawn directly from the episode, was from the Apostle Thomas when he is talking to the Ethiopian woman who recently joined their group. And she was welcomed in by the other women and... She is observing what they're doing and they are doing a lot of fighting and trying to figure out what the right way to do things is and just trying to figure out how they can best serve Jesus because they all have their own views on what would be the best way to serve Jesus. And we definitely see this in the apostles in scripture. So this is based in reality because we see them often jockeying for position. Uh, you remember that John and James uh, sought places of prominence in the kingdom. When we get to the Lord's Supper, we will see them asking, who is the greatest? So this is a recurring theme for them. Uh, and Thomas is pointing out that that even though they have a shared vision of following Christ, their differences of opinion can cause friction. And if that's not true of the church today, is it not? We all have uh, this goal as true believers in Christ to see Christ's kingdom uh, grow, but we all have different views of what that means and how to accomplish it. And Jesus' prayer for us before he went to the cross was that we would all be one. So that's a really good 
kind of starting out lesson for us to realize that we need to figure out each other's strengths and allow the fact that people have different skills and different things that God has gifted them with to make the body of Christ what it is. And so I think that's really an early lesson in this episode is just allowing that God can work through other people than ourselves and that he does and that everyone is on their own journey. So the backdrop of this episode in the opening scenes, we see actually an apprentice and a businessman negotiating for the sale of some very uh, choice real estate. And in the beginning of this episode, we don't necessarily see the significance of this, but we will see it later on multiple levels. And as we unpack it, uh, we will talk about it more. But then we move on to see the disciples in the camp preparing for the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a big part of the episode and also a big part of why I struggle with it. Uh, because I'm not on board fully with how Dallas portrays this. The reason that I have such a struggle with it is primarily because when Jesus is presenting the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, it says that he saw the multitudes and went into a mountain. And then his disciples came unto him and he taught them saying. So the Sermon on the Mount, according to Matthew, was primarily for the inner circle of disciples. And yet, this is portrayed by Dallas Jenkins as kind of a major event that the disciples are preparing for. Now, even this, at least in part, has some basis in historical and biblical accuracy because there are times when Jesus would send the disciples ahead of him to prepare the way, and it was a very common thing for rabbis to do to send disciples ahead to prepare for him to come. And so it's not with, not outside of the entire realm of possibility that this would happen. Uh, but I just struggle with the, whether Jesus would have put this amount of preparation into the Sermon on the Mount or whether it was more of a spontaneous thing. Nothing, in a sense, was spontaneous for Jesus because he knew all things. But I, I kind of tend to believe it was more of a spontaneous event that happened and a lot of people listened I'm sure and were impacted by it but I think it was more of that and less of the pre-planning that went into this sermon another side story that you see in this episode is the Pharisees continuing to plot against Jesus they, they're worried about his teaching. And again, some of them may have genuinely been worried that he was a false teacher. I think more so than that, the Bible conveys to us that they were worried about his popularity. And so they're beginning to build the case against Jesus. And I do like seeing scenes like that because I think that it will really be impactful as we build toward 
uh, the seventh and final season where Jesus is headed to the cross. Because I don't think it was five days beforehand the Pharisees got mad at Jesus and decided to put him on the cross. It's been building for some time. Remember, there were times when they picked up stones to stone him and he walked away. There was a time when soldiers were told to bring him into the temple leadership and they came back empty handed and the leaders were like, where is he? Why didn't you get him? And they said, no one spoke like this man. So there was repeated times when they wanted to deal with Jesus and they were unable to do so. And it's all building towards the climax, which will be the trials of Jesus. And then he'll be placed on a cross. And of course, as we know, three days later, he rises again because we know that the end of the story has been written and that God wins. And so that's exciting. So that's another part of this episode. And then you see the disciples trying to prepare a place for Jesus to do his sermon. And they run into this businessman and his apprentice, who we later find out is Judas Iscariot. But the way that he's introduced in this episode is very subtle, and you don't know for sure until the final scene, basically, of the series that that is the case. And then the other major part of this episode is Jesus working with Matthew to craft the Sermon on the Mount. Now, again, this goes against uh, my conventional belief and my solid belief that Jesus didn't necessarily prep this ahead of time, but I kind of liked what Dallas had to say about this particular matter. Then, of course, we have the heartbeat of this whole episode, and in many ways, the heartbeat of the entire season, which is Jesus and Matthew on this mountain preparing the Sermon on the Mount. If you believe Jesus never prepared the sermon and he just never had to prepare for anything, then you didn't like episode five where we showed Jesus preparing for a sermon for a few seconds, then you really hated this because this is doubling down on all that. We show it even more. So there's nothing I'm going to say to make you like this part, but I will say that this digging deeper into this and showing Jesus and Matthew working out this sermon to me is one of the most beautiful moments of the entire show. Brings up a good question. You know, did Jesus need Matthew to do this? I think the answer is yes and no, which sounds like a cop-out. Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus, he and I worked through a lot of this because some of the lines that were originally written, he was like, I'm not sure I'm totally comfortable with this because I don't want people to think that Jesus needed Matthew's opinion, that he couldn't have written this sermon without Matthew, and I, I understood that. So we tweaked a few of the lines, but I do believe that it is plausible that Jesus could have used the help of Matthew to write things down, to work out some of the order. I don't think Jesus, of course, needed Matthew to understand the truth of what he was saying. Of course not. Jesus knew the truth of what he was saying, and he understood all that. But Matthew is someone who struggles to communicate and be communicated with. So why did Jesus, in our storyline, have Matthew there? Well, number one, he wanted him to write it down. And Matthew is the one who has the sermon written down in the Gospels. Two, I believe that Jesus was doing a work in Matthew. I think that by involving him in this process, it was helping Matthew learn and helping Matthew understand concepts that he might not have otherwise understood. We consider it to be a a moment of true grace and kindness and empathy that Jesus involved Matthew 
in this process. Of course, this isn't factual. I'm just saying from our perspective for the show. Would he have worked out some of the order of it with Matthew? I don't know. Maybe not. But I don't think it's implausible either. And I think it was an opportunity primarily for us. And this is the main reason we did it is, again, Matthew is our audience surrogate. We didn't want you to just watch 30 minutes of Jesus preaching a sermon, just quoting from the Gospel of Matthew. I've seen that before. It's fine. The sermon is extraordinary, of course, so it's never a bad thing to hear that sermon. But that's been done before. We wanted to have a chosen approach, and the chosen approach is to come at it from a different perspective. One thing I will say about this approach is that it does kind of remind me of any time that Jesus asked a question of his followers or of people that he interacted with throughout the scriptures. Because if we really think about it, Jesus knows how we're going to answer the questions, but he still wants us to ask the questions and to answer his questions. And if you notice, Jesus very rarely would ask a yes or no question because he wanted to draw what the person was really thinking and feeling out of them and have an actual conversation and not just a simple five-word exchange. So I think if you look at it that way, I kind of feel like that's the perspective that Dallas is taking. He's not taking the perspective that Jesus needed Matthew to line all this stuff up for him and make sure that it sounded great. The perspective that he seems to be taking is one where he says, Matthew needed one-on-one attention. He has had a hard time fitting into the group. He's only had a couple people, the women and perhaps Philip, that have really taken him under their wing, and he's still finding his place among the disciples. And so this gave Matthew and Jesus the opportunity to interact and to talk about important issues and to flesh them out because it's interesting. Matthew says at one point, I don't really understand metaphor. And so then Jesus is able to share with him like the metaphor of being the salt of the earth, that salt is a preservative and he wants his people to be people that will preserve good on the earth. So that part of it was solid. And I also appreciate what Dallas said about wanting to present the Sermon on the Mount in a fresh new way, because if you're just watching him preach it, that can be been there, done that, seen it. On the flip side, you do have to be careful when you say that about something that is in Scripture, because we have an obligation to get the Scriptures right. And so there's pluses and minuses on both sides, and... I I think that there is benefit to this episode, um, but that's just a perspective on the most important and central topic of this issue, which was the preparation of the Sermon on the Mount. So then we fast forward to the day of the sermon. The disciples have worked hard getting things set up. And uh, just to backtrack a little bit, I don't really think they passed out flyers. To me, that is really uh, a modern thing, and I'm not sure why that was included, but for whatever reason, we have a group of people, a crowd of people amassing for this sermon, and Jesus is preparing to go out and deliver it. And there's some kind of heartwarming things that happen in this final few moments. First of all, 
we see Zebedee and John and James Ema who have come to share this time with them and see them. Presumably they haven't seen them since they left with Jesus. And so there's a joyful reunion there. We see Eden, the wife of Peter, coming back and sharing joy with Peter at being reunited because it had to be difficult um, for Peter to be away from his wife. And yet she knew that he was doing what God called him to do and that ultimately that made him a better man. And so that was kind of exciting to see. And there were a couple other friend reunions. And then, of course, the reveal of Judas, because he decided after helping to negotiate for the land that the sermon would take place, he decided, along with his business associate, to go and see the sermon. And so he gets hooked up with the disciples. And one of the last things we hear is him acknowledging that his name is Judas. And so that's kind of a cliffhanger for the season. Just seeing this episode end with Judas being revealed and Jesus going out to give his sermon. Now we don't see very much of him giving the sermon. We basically just see him walk out to meet the people. But one of the other interesting things about this episode is when he's talking to Matthew about the best way to begin the sermon he decides on the Beatitudes, and he goes through them with Matthew. And for each Beatitude, you see a flashback to a former scene in the series. And he sees how each of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, etc., etc., you see how these Beatitudes were incorporated and necessary for the disciples as they struggled through life. And so you see a very personal application for those things. And I, I really liked that touch and I understood why Dallas didn't just want to go through the entire sermon uh, because that could just be a very long scene and as he said, it's been portrayed on film many times before. As Dallas has said often throughout the production of this series, his goal is isn't simply to reproduce the Bible. His goal is to use drama to encourage people to seek answers in the Bible. And so I really do think that The Chosen is accomplishing that. And it's just really exciting how God has blessed this project. It's always 100% free on the app. And I just am very appreciative of that model. I'm so glad that people are continuing to contribute and I hope that it continues and is able to complete its goal of seven seasons. And so this is where we leave season two. The Sermon on the Mount has begun and Judas has been introduced. So I think that means that we have met all of the disciples so there's many more adventures and challenges to come in Season 3. I know they are filming right now, so I'm very excited for Season 3, Episode 1 to be announced. As per my usual, I probably will not review Season 3 until it is complete, but I'm excited to share more Chosen adventures with you. As we close, I just want to encourage you 
to seek to follow God with your whole heart and to realize that the body of Christ is a body where we have been placed into a family for a purpose. I give this episode another hearty three out of five stars. Again, I would rank it higher if it had more of the actual biblical narrative within it, but I do think that there is still a lot of positive things to draw from it, and I hope that this review has encouraged you. I hope that you will look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ and thank God for the skills and the gifts that he has given them and that you encourage them and provoke them to good works, as is our duty as believers in Jesus Christ. I hope that if this episode of the podcast has encouraged you, you will share it with your family and friends. That's how more people get to know what we are doing here on the Speaking for Him podcast so that they too can be encouraged and encourage others. As Paul said, commit these things unto faithful men that they may teach others also. With that being said, I will simply say have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.